What I've learned in general is most businesses are started from a passion project. Like most people start a software consultancy because they know how to write software. But most of what you learn secondary is how to run the business. Now that I'm doing workman's comp insurance, like I don't, what in the world is this? So same for software developers. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. I'm happy today to introduce our guest. He's someone who goes way back in my career and is someone I've always looked to up to over the years. He's done a little bit of everything from designing websites and running a software consulting agency to promoting conferences and developing real estate. I've heard him called the Bruce Wayne of Panama City, but I might suggest in due time, you may call him the next mayor of Panama City. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Alan Branch. Hello, thanks Glad for having me. Glad to have you here. Excited. We'll lots of random topics. Let's go. Love it. So for those that don't know you, let me give like a brief intro that I know of you, but we'll dig deeper. A couple of things that stand out to me about you is I know you're homeschooled. You talk a lot about that. You grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, your granddad and dad owned car washes. And so you were introduced very early to that. And then you went to college and played collegiate football, which is pretty unique. And then after football, you got into website design. You started a consulting agency and then a SaaS. So you've had a very dynamic background. One of the things that I was wondering is like, do you attribute some of like your homeschool, your entrepreneurship leading into ability to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I do. My parents were both teachers before they took over the car washes. And there was five of five kids in the family. I was second to the oldest. And so my parents did have a teaching background. And my grandmother actually taught first grade for like 35 years too. But they started homeschooling us in like probably 85 or so. And I did that until high school. And my parents were not super rigid. And I always explain too, like if my life would and my actions would make more sense if people knew my parents. And they're tremendous people. And they put us in such tremendous experiences growing up that this all is a lot less. It's just Alan, the way I was raised. The way we were raised in homeschooling is my parents would hey, we want to do a field trip. And my parents would say, well, you should call the paper mill or call the nuclear power plant. And so I'm like a 10-year-old looking them up in the yellow pages, calling the wrong person. You need to call this person, (laughs) call the next person. I'm a 12-year-old and I'm with the homeschool group in Panama City. And so like, what does that do to a kid? Well, that shows you that calling the wrong person, it's okay. And you can ask for help, explain who you are and be a person people root for. And my parents, we all had music instrument lessons and my parents would drop us off like retirement homes and be like play for the old people. And we were like, this is terrible. (laughs) And my mom would make us talk to all the old people. And I thought it was torture because these old people smell and they're old and I'm eight or 10 or 12. But what it was doing was giving us practice on speaking to people who we may or may not want to speak with. And I also now as an older person, I now realize like seeing kids is like a source of life. If you're in a nursing home, you're just seeing people die around you. So little kids coming and playing love me tender on the guitar really poorly, but then speaking to everyone is probably the best day of their week. A lot of things that come natural to me talking about business. I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. We didn't talk about football. Although I played football in college, we talk about entrepreneurship. My dad is like the Jason Freed of car washing. He really is. He's like famous car washing people 
And he goes to a car washing conference. People take pictures with him. But I grew up as a homeschooler going to car wash conferences and, and as a 12-year-old talking to old people about debt service and firing employees and sign codes. And I thought all that was really normal. And my dad's friends would share their P&Ls to help each. My dad had this model of car washing where you drive in yourself and you vacuum yourself. My dad invented that with his friends, like two of his friends, Benny Alford and Baton Rouge and my dad and Pat Mosse, the first two of those in the whole world. And so I grew up, especially in my in young 20s, when that model of car washing was being invented, I was going to car wash conventions and hearing these people talking about an industry that was like, this is a new model. Most car washes are full service or self-service and hearing them all talking to each other and them making adjustments in their next washes or them learning from each other, them using each other's books to borrow money. And then Facebook comes around and Twitter comes around. And so me seeing adult men in businesses and women talking about transparency of here's what I lost money on. Here's what I would change the next location. It just kind of parlayed itself into Twitter, which was what was Twitter early on? It was a bunch of us nerds talking to each other, right? And so it just, all that just feels natural. I can definitely see a lot of those things coming out because you guys had less comp and mm-hmm. you were teaching and communicating with others and collaborating. And one of the things that was very influential in my career was the less money conference. Yeah. And you remember those? I think y'all only had like maybe two of them. A handful of them, yeah. And I'd been freelancing for maybe like three or four years and I was totally solo. I was like in this silo. I saw that you guys were doing this conference. I've been aware of who you guys were, less everything. And I was like, I want to go learn from them. And I went there. It was just such an eye-opening thing for me. We had maybe like 20 people in the room and they were all doing some sort of independent consulting. Everybody was sharing, just going around the circle and talking about their business and my career like doubled after that because yeah. of the confidence that I gained and just learning from others. It was a huge experience. Yeah. Those little workshops where you were, we were doing sort of this bootstrap model to build, we were copying 37 signals, right? Those were still our people I idolize, right? They did consulting work and built a product. And so we were teaching what we were learning. And I think small groups are a great way to really lower the egos down and, and really get to like what's happening. And we had made lots of mistakes in consulting and saw lots of mistakes. And so it wasn't, those little workshops weren't about how to build a product. It was just how to build a company. What I've learned in general is most businesses are started from a passion project. Like most people start a software consultancy because they know how to write software. You start a restaurant typically because you are a chef or love food, or you start a brewery because you know how to brew beer. But most of what you learn secondary is how to run the business. Like, it's like, oh my God, I wanted to brew beer. And now that I'm doing workman's comp insurance, like, I don't, what in the world is this? Yeah. And so same for software developers. And yeah, there were, we did a few of those and they worked well. For me, if you look at my career and you're like, wow, he's done so many random things. It's really more of me tiptoeing into things and making money from them. And then realizing like, I don't really want to do that. A lot of those, that's a lot of work. And so like return on stress and return on effort and Those are like fun helping people, but talking for three days is exhausting to me. And so it would take me two weeks to like recover from all the words and that sort of stuff. And so we did a few of those, but yeah, the conferences too. I grew up going to, going to car wash conferences and, and my dad became the international car wash association president, which is this huge association, massive, takes you days to walk across the trade show, but I would go to small regional events where it would be just groups of people touring car washes. And I was like, 
we can do something like this, but for the nerds building businesses. And so I just took what I saw previously and put a different cap on it, a different industry. And obviously we had our own spin with those conferences as being strange and wacky and that kind of stuff. But I'm the product of what I've already seen. Do you have any like favorite memories from those conferences? Oh gosh, there was a real funny time where, I mean, and this sounds like a sh- clip from the office or something, but Steve, it was a break and Steve had, he was really the MC of the event. He loved being on stage. I don't really love the spotlight that much, but he had, he was on the stage and we had a break and he's like, I'm going to use the restroom, but his mic was still on and you could hear him peeing <laughs> and everyone's like, what is that running water? And then you realize like someone's peeing and then he walks in front of like 400 people and we're all just laughing at him. And you would, I think people thought he had really done that on purpose. <laughs> he had no idea that's what he was doing. So little things like that. And the hard part with conferences for me, and he would make hundred grand a year from the conference, which is good money and fun. People think you're cool because you run it. But for me, we put ourselves in the conference, less comp so much in the marketing and we put our personalities and things. You're looking at, 400, 500, 600 people at one point coming to an event. And I know most of them, but then I can't talk to all of them. And so it's like being a bride at your own wedding. And then you're never doing any of the people that you like justice because you're not there able to really talk to them. You're like looking at the caterer and that trash can. And so it's such, it was so hard mentally for me to come off of that sort of like, people came here, they want to talk to you and you missed them. And someone's leaving going, I came there to talk to Alan and he didn't even, he didn't remember my name or he didn't remember something about me or he was distracted. And that really hurts me to think that someone is mad at me because I was distracted. So it just became a thing where I, we didn't want to host a lot more of those. It was too much mental taxing on us. And so I can make money from this thing and that was fun, but I don't want to do it long-term and I'm still searching for like meaningful work, I guess. But That's pretty incredible that you're able to make money on it though. I think a lot of people yeah. kind of run at break even and chalk it up as marketing or you know yeah. something like that. So. Yeah, we were scrappy and we had good sponsors and we also, because it was not just a conference that had great speakers, at one point we stopped even promoting the speakers at all. So people paid, I think, a little bit more to come to them because it wasn't just like, oh, talks that I could see online. It was like, you would go because you'd want to meet people. The people there were interesting. Des and Owen, who started Intercom.io. I remember them there. They were just getting started. They Well, they spoke at the very first 2009 Les Comp, which was like Gary Vaynerchuk spoke, Jason Freed spoke, Michael McDermott from FreshBooks. It was like a whole lineup of just Derek Sivers spoke. And these two random guys from Ireland who didn't even have a product, they were the oddball out. But I knew them because when I was a consultant before, before I met Steve Bristol, previous to less everything, I won a project over them, an Irish client. And so they were like, they wrote this scathing blog post about me, about how, you know, we, I stole a customer or something from them. But then I just looked at their talks and like, they're really interesting guys. And then the last was it no 2011 last comp? They announced Intercom at that event, and it was a that little, was in Atlanta, right? That was yeah. There was like a little. They were yeah. like, "Can we throw out some T-shirts? And we don't have any money." And we're like, "Sure, go ahead." And so, and they actually had another moment. Des posted on Facebook about the trip to Jacksonville, the first last comp, and he was like, "Facebook memory." He shared and said, "This was a we didn't realize how pivotal this e- traveling to the U.S. for this event would be for us." And it was one of those moments where I was like, "Oh man, I wish I could tell Steve this moment." So those are all good memories from those past years. Can we talk about how you 
got into consulting and web development and all of that? Totally. Well, I'm 43 this year. And so I came out of college or was coming out of college playing football, 2000, 2001, 2002-ish kind of thing. And at that time, the curriculum in the University of Alabama and Birmingham was like, you learn Photoshop. There's no such thing as like, the internet's kind of this thing. We don't really know what it is yet. You're computer science and you're building desktop software or you're some sort of computer engineer. And then you're a graphic designer. Those are the two. There's no internet designer person. I guess information architect was probably a thing at the time, but not really like a UI person. And so, but I saw the internet and I was like, well, I can do static websites. Also, my dream at that time was to be like, I want to own an ad agency that has a couple weird clients. That's That was kind of the dream for me. And I was always like, if I can make 60 grand a year and have some weird clients, I'll be happy. <laughs> so your dream was like a madman. Isn't that the show? Advertising clients. A little oddball. Marketing. Agency. Yeah. Working with some strange customers. Yeah. And, but the internet was this weird thing. And I realized I was sort of artsier than the nerdy kids and nerdier than the artsy kids and had more of a business mind. And so I didn't know what that was. And so we started building websites for just doctors off oncology groups and, and that kind of stuff. And then it kind of slowly moved into sort of this online software thing, but we didn't call it online software. It was like a fancy website. Did you start off just you or did you have a couple of friends that were working for you or partnerships or? Yeah, we, I hired a couple of developers. We're doing PHP stuff, some really simple CMS stuff. And then we started doing, we built a, an online forum for the car wash industry called Talk Car Wash. That was the first Rails project. That would have probably been 06. Wow. Yeah. yeah like, like early days of Rails. Yeah. Early, early, early days of Rails. And then we got, a, I got a client off. And then, so my life too is also doing little things that don't really make sense. Like a, a car wash forum doesn't really make sense. But then that allowed us to get a, allowed me to get a big client where I needed to hire a better Ruby, a Ruby on Rails developer. And I hired Steve, my, who became later my business partner. And then we started building bigger software projects. And then web-based software became a thing that's years and UI. But, you know, the early blog post that we were posting on lesseverything.com was like, Hey, when a customer's credit card expires on a SaaS software, we should email them before it expires. Let them update it. Instead of letting them just churn, which we didn't even have a word for churn. Yeah. It was it, that sort of simplistic view of like, what is this thing that we're all creating together and how do we make money? And even like Dunning emails was like, we should send email, a lifecycle emails. Like, oh, I have a blog post. that's like, here's five emails. You should send someone when they first sign up because no one was doing that. Yeah, yeah. Which seems so obvious now, right? Right. That's interesting. That's the dark days of the internet. But also maybe the exciting time to like map out the territory because you just kind of land on this new this new territory that no one's really figured out and put names to all the things and come up with the concepts that now they're all polished and have their own lives, but like initially need to be discovered. Totally. The model of car washing that sort of ride through, wash it yourself, that my dad's spearhead really has revolved around subscriptions. And so in like 2013, 14, subscription-based car washing was really a thing. And software as a service had already just churn, lifetime customer value, zombie revenue. Those were all established terms in our industry. And then the car wash industry had no idea what those terms were. And so I was telling my dad, hey, well, that's good, but you want to get them back using it. And what is sure? And so they took the terms that were, I was giving them that were already established. And my dad was like, my son calls this churn. And now you <laughs> look at awesome. like these huge, there's these the huge investment firms now that are buying thousands of car washes. They use those terms now. They yeah. everyone, 
So it's so funny that you just take from one industry and move it to the next. So I don't invent anything is really the reality. It's only my autobiography. <laughs> so you guys are building software and then I guess like a lot of software consultancies, you have this dream of building your own product. And you, you already said you're following 37 signals and they were people that everybody looked up to. But how did you get into accounting and what made you decide to start less accounting? Yeah, well, complete mistakes, right? I don't ever advise anyone to build payroll or accounting software. That's a nightmare. You don't want that life unless you have like a $50 million equity firm behind you. You start out with like, hey, we want to build an invoicing tool. You know, back in the day, there was this whole, I would say 2008 to 2013, everyone was spinning out in invoicing tools. We were kind of right behind FreshBooks and we were wanted to do just invoicing and proposals. And that turned into, let's do expenses. And then before you know it, your scope creep has turned you into accounting software. And I would never recommend that. Too big of a market hindsight, right? But yeah, that, we built something that we thought we needed and we thought we could do better than other people. And we might have, but it also, we couldn't keep up with people who had large amounts of money behind them and we just couldn't keep up. So, And that's not the kind of business I'm guessing you wanted to get investment and then go big like that? Well, we didn't know how to do that. And so, yeah, it, again, I'm not very strategic. It's all like what I tried to tell you. Strategic as you look at, you can lay it out and like, oh, look how strategic I am. But no, the reality is we just didn't know how to get money. And we were, I'm in Panama City. My former business partner, Stephen Bristol, was in Jacksonville. However, his brother was named Laszlo Bach, and he was like the third or fourth most powerful person at Google and uh, ran human op- human resources at Google. And so we could have reached out to Laszlo and been like, put us in touch with people. But it always seemed like, we're not good at doing that. And neither one of us wanted to be good at it. We liked building products. Now, if we were building the tool, we probably would have hired somebody who knew how to do that or partnered with them, something like that. But it was much more like ignorance of not how to, you know, focusing on things that we know how to do, build product. Do you think that looking back now, would you have held the scope back on less accounting as a product? Yeah. Well, made it super niche. It would have been accounting for car washes or something like that. It wouldn't have been accounting for anybody too big of a product, too big of a market, all those things. And we were also, at the time, and we, so when we sold less accounting, we didn't sell it for a whole lot of money. I mean, this is a whole lot compared to some people, but we had talks with emergent acquisition boards at American Express and Capital One, Tax Slayer is another one. We spoke to them, but we had not built a company that time fit into their box of what they buy. So these mergers acquisition teams of these large companies were, are risking their jobs personally to buy things on the behalf of the company. And you have like, let's compare us to FreshBooks or someone like that who has a company and they have a headquarters and it's, they're not weird. They don't do <laughs> controversial things or say bad things on Twitter. And you as someone who's buying companies, you're being managed by other people. You buy the thing that fits into the box. And so we had not built a company at that time where people were like, oh, you fit into the box of what we know how to buy. We pull your team here. It was kind of this weird little team. And so I realized in those things, I like building pirate ships and not companies. There's a kind of a difference. I like little pirate ships. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Pirate ships are like this little disruption team where they're like, you're moving quickly. Everyone on the team is a builder or creator. You haven't established lots of rules. And that's all really fun to me. When you get a company that moves slow, My personality loves progress and I will dig a ditch as long as you don't hide my shovel and you tell me the direction the ditch should go and we're all having fun while we do it. 
But as soon as like you hide my shovel and I don't know which direction I should be digging, it's not fun to me. Because then you're like, I've been digging the hell out of this ditch that way, but the ditch is actually this way. No one actually identified the problem. And so companies to me have HR policies. Companies have all those things that that are, we got to have another meeting about a meeting, which is the thing. The software companies we have now are super awesome, but they've grown to a point with the number of employees where you have to have those things. You have to have policies. You have to have HR. And those things are frustrating to me because I like building. I'm a builder. When you were creating less accounting, we are talking earlier about scrappiness and marketing. And I love some of the things that you guys came out with. One of the things was you created an enemy and your enemy was QuickBooks. And you love to dig on QuickBooks. And I think that's such a powerful like marketing tool to have is like, talk more about that. Yeah. Well, it was much more accidental. So uh, Twitter was new, right? So 2008, Twitter's this thing coming out and you're seeing, I'm seeing tweets where people are like, ah, I can't use QuickBooks. It sucks. And so I was like, these are real testimonials. Tweets are testimonials. And so we built a little site that was like, we all hate QuickBooks, which brought in all those tweets, stuff like that, which is like, now that's not a crazy idea. But at the time it was like, who, what? You know, it was just us talking, us nerds. And looking back to, you really want to dig into like finding an enemy. That's actually a part of cult building. You find an enemy. Right. What you do. <laughs> we didn't realize that at the time, but it is. It's a common language, a common way you dress. You identify an enemy that we all hate. But yeah, QuickBooks was the big bad elephant in the room. There were lots of us trying to go after QuickBooks and it was fun to pick on them. And the underdog story is something that people typically will root for. And it is kind of disheartening too, mentally to build a company and your entire staff is probably the size of like the branding team. (laughs) When you're the small competitor, you can't chase after your competitor in the same way that they run. You have to attack them. I mean, it's like probably guerrilla warfare, very similar. You attack your enemy on your with your strengths and our strengths were our creativity and us uniquely being ourselves. And so, yeah, we did things like our tagline for less accounting was something like we, everyone hates bookkeeping software, but you'll hate ours the least or something like that. <laughs> or just little things. Cause people like to say, oh, our software's going to be so great, but nobody truly likes accounting software. That's the last thing that you want to do. And so let's actually be real about that. And so all those kind of things being uniquely ourselves also feels better to us when you're going through the slog of building a company as well. So the thing story about me is like, if you look at me, it's less about me being like, not truly confident in my creativity, but if I'm going to go broke building a business, it's going to be on my own terms, uniquely like me or what I want to see. I don't want to fail building a bland brand that nobody likes. I want to fail in a blazing glory of fire, right? That's what I want to do. So you were talking about pirates earlier and a couple of other things I remember from Les Accounting were you guys had this big poster of Mr. T <laughs> and you used him as a, like a marketing spokesperson. We did. We did. And you, could, you were talking about how you could do that because you're a small scrappy company, right? And you could sort of take advantage. You did some good research. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. So... Yeah, again, down the line of just being, what are good problems to have? But you look at like QuickBooks or these people that can hire spokespeople. And I was like, let's hire Mr. T impersonator and we'll have them do the voicemail. When you call our 1-800 number, it's Mr. T saying, 
I pity the fool that uses QuickBooks. I won for support. <laughs> and we put Mr. T's face on our error pages because the worst case scenario is you get a cease and desist from Mr. T. Right. Oh, what would that be? Yeah, right? yeah. So he's like, he's going to sue some little company. And a lot of that is just kind of like being a little, yeah, just contrarian, I guess, or whatever you're going to call that, just being a little wacky. And and, and I, I think that might've been the early days of when Cameo had first come out. There was a couple of the pre-Cameo apps where people were kind of engaging their audience, but the constraint of not having much money breeds creativity is that you have to be scrappy. You got to figure out how to, what mistakes you can go after. And so that was one of the random things we did. It seems like a lot of people in that situation would be like, oh, wouldn't it be so funny if we did this? And then the other person says, oh yeah, that would be. And then you just stop right there. Because you're busy. But, right. Yeah. So what got you to the next point? No, we're actually going to build this site or we're going to do this funny thing that we're going to actually put energy. Totally. Right. Cause you're inundated with ideas and it's always like, what idea do you do next? And so most great ideas start with, wouldn't it be cool? And they end with, okay, let's get back to work. Yeah. Right. And so it is, there's a sort of, there's sort of a balance. There's not like a balance. There's not like, oh, we spent 10 hours this week on being wacky and then 10 hours <laughs> on being productive. It's not, it's just realizing when, when an idea is worth spending some time on, it's no different than picking features. And then you realize the time invested, like, oh, we could spin out a Mr. T- what is the first step to testing the idea? It's just same as software. You know, just realizing that you can push things back. That's, and not everything's important. Yeah, I don't know. We were really good about that. I've always been kind of good about working on something, but working on other things. That's balance, not balancing, juggling lots of little responsibilities I'm pretty good at. Making room. Yeah, making room for some creativity. That's all I really have. I'm really not a very good designer. I could write a feature, but it's going to be garbage. Like I always be like, I can get into a controller and I'll screw it all up. So keep me out of your controllers, but uh, keep me in the views. I, so my creativity is my strength. So I'm an idea guy that's okay at implementing things. I can video a little bit. I can design pretty good, but not great. So there's people that are better, those maker skills than me. But I'm when you bring in my ability to make ideas and implement them in a, like a okay fashion quickly, that's where my strengths are. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. We did lots of random weird things like that. We, yeah, we did storybooks with Kate. Your mommy is a superhero because she's an entrepreneur books. And we did random things. It mostly is me you know, itching that creative need to like make a coloring book and that kind of thing. So I still got the quit your day job t-shirt. That was a popular one too. I saw that design on Dribble. So you know, I'd go through Dribble just as a designer and some guy in, in Europe had made that design. Just for fun, I messaged him and said, hey, can I buy this design from me? He's like, 200 bucks. I'm like, perfect. Yeah. It would have cost 200 <laughs> bucks. And so giving away a bunch of those shirts at LessConf, we would get them paid for by the sponsor that's on the back. And I still people wear them all the time. I see pictures all the time, people wearing them. Yeah, so that's, yeah, just being aware. It wasn't, Steve Martin had a quote that said something like, comedians are no different than normal people. We all have these thoughts of like, what's funny? But a comedian listens to those whispers and writes them down or tracks them and then works on them. We all have creative ideas, but the person who's a creative takes that idea and then figures out how to implement it and how to test it and refine it. That's the difference. It's like you take seriously the funny stuff. The whispers. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I liked what you said about features. It's like these activities or creative random ideas that would come up. There's no different than features. You're just you're saying yes and no to things. You don't know if a feature is going to bring you new customers, if it's going to increase your revenues. You don't know about these ideas either, but some of them are going to work. So, yeah. yeah, most of all, you know, most of leadership 
especially within organizations where there's where you have customers and employees is dealing with thousands of bits of feedback and thousands of to-dos and going like, all right, here's what we're going to do next. It's prioritization and communication. And I've forgotten most of the crazy stuff we did with less accounting. I just feels like a thousand years ago and yesterday at the same time. So Alan, you had a unique opportunity that I think probably not a lot of people get to experience that you built a company and especially a SaaS company and you were fortunate enough to have an exit and have an acquisition led to that decision. And then I want to ask a follow-up question with how did you feel and what did you think about like, oh gosh, what am I going to do next? Because I feel like I hear a lot of people, entrepreneurs who sell their companies and then they immediately like have some regret and they start thinking like, man, I had a great company. I had a great team of people and everybody thought of me as this business owner. Now, what am I going to do? Well, and I have the same thoughts too, right? So I have to remind myself that I am not my business. Those are fun things that I do. It's not how I identify myself as a human being. Father and husband are much more important titles, in my opinion. So yeah, we sold Less Accounting, I think it was 2016. I can't even remember. Laughable amount of money compared to most people's exits, probably. We sold it through FE International, which is sort of a tech broker. They knew how to sell companies. We had no idea how to even sell the company. And we knew if we put it out there like, hey, we're selling Less Accounting, we would have 800 phone calls of people who just wanted to talk, which is fine. But Spent three months talking to people that weren't interested. So sold it through FE International. At that point, yeah, we probably had to sort of re-identify yourself. Who are we now? We didn't really know. What helped is when at the time when we sold less accounting, we had a bunch of people that were like, oh, perfect. Help us build our companies. And we made way more money consulting the next two years than we did ever with less accounting. Interesting. 10 times more money. Were you still doing the consulting before you sold or had you kind of winded that we down? We would take periodic products okay, when occasional. the money was really good. It's hard to turn down like, you want a $50,000 bonus? Like, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. And so we did. We built a couple of products with friends. The little bit of money that we made from less accounting was enough money that most people would buy a lake house, an RV, a big boat, and a nice truck. And I hate spending money. I was, I always feel like this is the last dollar I'm going to make. <laughs> and so, so I was like, we didn't spend any money. One thing that Steve guided me through, we always tried to keep the same investments and we had access to each other's fidelity accounts. And he was like, we're buying Bitcoin. So I didn't even realize that I had bought Bitcoins for many years later. And I was like, oh yeah. Cause he left me a note, make sure you check the Bitcoins. And so, yeah, we did really well with Bitcoins and that was all Steve's idea. Steve passed away in 2017, and that was much more monumental in my life than the business. I love Steve Bristol, and anyone can Google Steve Bristol and less everything, and he was just an amazing person and uh, guided me like an older brother would. He was like eight years older than me. And so when he left, he took his life and left me a beautiful note about uh, taking care of his family and how much he loved me and was all the words that I needed to feel closure and appreciation for a person who didn't want to be here anymore. And so that was much harder for me because my identification was not truly in less accounting, I felt like, but it was tied to Steve. And Steve was my crutch too. If something were to break in an app that I was working on, I would call Steve. And he really, whether he enabled my lack of learning in software or whatever that was, he was my cheerleader and my mentor. Many times he was one of the people that would say, this is a good idea, but you need to go bigger with it. Or really was one of the first people that cheerleaded my silliness. Even looking back in college, I would do graphic design projects. They were always slightly silly. 
and everyone else was kind of being serious in their projects. And so I, Steve was really like, you should do more of this. This is what makes you special. And I had never had anyone tell me that. And so well, losing Steve was much more pivotal. In fact, I've only blogged, we used to blog almost every day on the lesseverything.com blog. And I blogged a few times, but it just feels really weird. And I feel weird. I don't really need the website up, but I don't want to take it down because that was that's Steve. And so that's been much harder, as you would imagine, losing best friend and, and business partner. The other sort of reorganization too was Hurricane Michael for us his in 2018. I took Bitcoin money and less accounting money and rolled that into real estate. Most of it just before the hurricane came and right after the hurricane and did really that. Real well. quick, Quan, did you decide to get out of Bitcoin at that point? She well, was the one of the highest. Well, it was the highest, right? Like, yeah. well, don't, but you didn't know it was the highest at the time. Like, how do you? No, know? you never do. And what I don't love about stocks and those sort of things is, well, selling anything. Like in the moment, you're like, yeah, great. Six months later, you go up or down. You're like a genius or an idiot. But then lifetime is always going to probably go up, with the exception of Bitcoin, with the exception of crypto. But no, again, I'm not strategic. I'm not as smart as perhaps some of my decisions have landed. <laughs> so there's plenty more where. That haven't landed. So don't <laughs> cherry pick my good decisions and try to be like, wow, you're very strategic. There's plenty of missteps in there. But no, I got out of it because I was like, I don't really know crypto that well. That was Steve's idea that helped me. And, and you were looking to it as an alternative investment too, right? I guess. Not even as an investment. I mean, again, you're looking at super smart, right? It was. No, you said you sold it and you were going to roll it into something. Yes, roll it into real estate. Yeah. And I, we rolled into real estate because we were already buying real estate could use some of the cash. And I was like, maybe this, at one point it went to like 60,000 a coin. And I looked like an idiot. That was at least two, a couple of years later though, right? Right. But then again, and then it drops to 33,000 and now I'm a genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so I do have a little more Ethereum coins, but yeah, no, I just sold it. Cause I wanted, I had some things I wanted to buy here, paid a lot of money in taxes. Yeah. Moved it over to real estate, bought real estate, bunch of real estate way, way low. I realized at least in our downtown, that it was a sort of a poorly marketed area. I was buying buildings for $10 a square foot. Was it down because of the hurricane? No, it was down just, and there's small cities across the US that have blighted downtowns that are beautiful buildings that have bad marketing, weaker businesses. The rents have dropped. The owners can't keep up. The owners are old. The businesses are old. It's the same story across America. And so investing is trying to tell yourself a story of this thing is going to go up because, and then you insert your story and you do the same thing, whether you're building a product, my time is worth this product because we're going to do these things and it'll make more money. This stock is going to make more money because of this real estate is going to make more money because of this. And you can kind of predict the future if you model your path similarly to someone else or, or another district. And I saw other districts kind of revitalize themselves. Right. Certainly probably COVID helped and inflation's helped, but you know, we bought five or six buildings at $10 a square foot, including the building that I'm in was 10 bucks a square foot. This is my house. And now they all appraise at like 190 a square foot. That's almost yeah. as much an increase as Bitcoin. Yeah, I got lucky <laughs> and timing is everything. Buying things that are potentially undervalued is sort of what you're trying to do with real estate or investing period, whether you're buying a stamp or an airplane or a car or property. It's all the same sort of mindset. Are you but, bullish on property and real estate right now? Well, that's a, you have different markets and then subset <laughs> market and, and products. And our sort of path is buying property around our downtown because each business we create, we have two brew pubs, helps the next one. And I also saw other people fail in revitalizing their districts around the country because 
you can build, you can buy a building or build a building, but it doesn't change the culture of a district. It doesn't change the environment and you need to get the rents up to be able to support renovations. And so I create my own tenants is what I do with, by creating businesses and I can raise the rent, which I'm basically paying myself. And then it makes it more feasible for other people to borrow money. And so that's what we've been doing here. It's been working so far, but the ending of the story is yet to be written. It can all go belly up. Right. And we can have a whole podcast called Alan's Demise. (laughs) (laughs) My son and I went on a five day road trip a few years back and we went through Panama City on our way down to, we were just kind of going along the coast. And so I think we spent the night there one night, but it was after, it was after the hurricane. So just kind of seeing that, like I can kind of picture what you're describing and, and the amount of work that was probably needed, the care that you had for your community. Obviously there's opportunities there for you, but also just like the, the need for investment in that. Yeah, the hurricane category five is what they eventually came out with, removed 80% of the trees out of the county. Uh, like so, eighty percent of the trees. I'm talking my old house. You've been in my old house. Yeah. My old house in Panama City had like eighty-five pine trees. There is zero trees in that yard now. Zero. Oh, wow. And so you have um, every roof in the county. And but what that does to a community, in hindsight, what it does is you have large influxes of insurance money, and people, and especially in blighted areas like our downtown, used to be. People were holding on to properties or they had inherited a property or they're thinking about retiring and they just yet hadn't retired. And that sort of catastrophic event is kind of like a heart attack, a heart attack that the whole county had together and it forces you to make a decision. I'm going to retire now. I'm going to sell my building now. It's time to clean up the attic because the attic's torn apart. (laughs) And so it forces people to make decisions that typically would have taken 10 years. They made them in two years. So we were buying property. We have a whole bunch of property now. And they were buying it up. So after we sold us a county, I would talk to bankers and I would say, what do people go out of business doing? And they say, starting restaurants. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so, so, but they were like, you should buy septic tank pumping companies or you should buy porta potty companies. That, you should start a gutter installing business. You could have had some fun with the marketing sides of that. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, yeah, it's true. And so you ask bankers like, hey, when do people that do real estate go out of business? And that's when they jump to, to too big of a project and they haven't learned the little steps. It's when they are buying or building things that are in the higher end of the market. Because if you have you know financial resets, that higher end product, people, there'll always be a market for a trailer park or a small apartment or a quadplex or a duplex. I'm not building luxury things. You know, your debt to value, debt to income ratio is important. Don't over leverage yourself. And so is just kind of learning the mistakes of other people. But I spent a lot of time talking to bankers and people like, tell me the horror stories. What have you seen? You can avoid those things. Not that I may be stepping into a landline now, though. so who knows? What got you to the place where you were ready to try the brew pub thing? Well, I had a good friend from high school that when we moved back to Panama City in like, oh, eight, no, nine, we connected with. And he's also a city planner. So he's in like planning and zoning at cities, which dictates land development code, dictates the size of roads and parks and things like that. And he's the one that educated me, much like Steve did. Although Tim is my age, opened my eyes. I have these hunches. And then he, and so like Steve did that with software and my creativity. Tim did that with me. I would say like, oh, how do, why is our downtown so crappy? And he would say, well, you should look at Ocean Springs, Mississippi, or you should look at Thomasville, Georgia. You should, and here's how they did it there. And so he was kind of taking my hunches that I potentially would have gone like, on and said, oh, keep going, look down this path. 
And so we had talked about you know breweries and we studied breweries. I also, because I used to go to accountant conferences, I met an accountant in Jacksonville who at that conference was like, I'm going to specialize in tax prep and bookkeeping for breweries. I remember like, oh, well, I'll look for brewery customers in less accounting and I'll send them to you. And then, so when we were talking about doing breweries, I said, hey, Chris, you still doing breweries? Can you give us some conversation? And he introduced us to his clients who showed us their books, potentially helped us avoid some mistakes. And we toured breweries and you tour breweries, you have this idea for a business. You're like, we want to do a brewery. And you're like, what's the next step? Well, in software, we all know what the next step is. It's like, let's build a proof of concept and let's, but in brewing, no one's really talking about that. And so what kind of lessons can you bring over from software about brewing? And so we would tour these breweries and we would look at all these equipment. We'd go like, did you guys start out with all this million dollars in equipment? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, that sounds like, that's a big (laughs) guess. Let's start out with the not enough equipment. What is the smallest model of a brewery that we could open where it's like impossible to have too much stuff? Like we can always add stuff later. And so we took some of the methodologies from lean startups and what we learned building those kind of businesses. And we kind of parlayed those into the breweries and the history class, which is one of the breweries that celebrates the stories of our town. That was, we used to do a lot of video marketing and things like that. That was really, when you look at marketing a brewery, the marketing of breweries that gets tired is when they're really pushing their product. And that's, that's the same lesson across any marketing is when you're just talking about your product. It's boring. Nike doesn't talk about their product. They don't talk, you don't know what kind of rubber compound are in the shoes. Breweries tell you all on what hop it is. Nobody cares. They care the beer tastes good. And so what can you talk about that your market will care about? And so we want to talk about the stories of our town, which every town's got cool stories. And we really projected less, or me, history class to be like, well, if we do 400 grand in revenue, we'll break even on the expenses. And we do like 2.2 million. And that brewery, the other one does like one six. So we're doing about 4 million in revenue between the two. And they all start small and you, what is your minimal viable product? And what are the good mistakes? Good mistakes are buying, you know, with manufacturing, which is what brewing is. Two stories. You have, we bought too much equipment and it sits around collecting dust, or we bought not enough equipment and we're having to buy more and get rid of some. There's always a production problem or a sales problem. There's never just enough. Same goes with any sort of manufacturing. And I've realized that with my stress level too, I'm either bored or I'm overwhelmed. There's no just, we all think there is. That's that balance that we keep telling ourselves we think there is. Like there's a work-life balance. No, there's not. It's either this (laughs) or this. Same goes with money. Same goes with time and attention and stress and brewing beer and manufacturing food and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's all this kind of, but it's brewing. What's great about the brewing industry and the food and beverage, and we have full kitchens, is the bar of being a good boss is very low. Software teams and software developers are in environments where they can express themselves and people listen typically. And the food and beverage industry usually has dictatorship owners who passive-aggressively sexually harass all the women. And they're not known for environments that people want to be in for long-term. Chick-fil-A kind of breaks that model. And there's a lot of room for just being kind to your employees and listening to them and saying, hey, how's it going? That They're like, you're a really nice boss. And you're like, I just said, hello. (laughs) You know, and so that's been really fun. And seeing our bookkeeper in the brewing businesses was a former bartender. And so training people beyond, it's always fun too, as an owner, when you take someone who thinks their job is this and you say, 
that you could do this and look at and grow them into something. That's really fun to see. That's very satisfying. But those businesses have similar problems with software businesses, thousands of ideas. See, people think, oh, just add hamburgers to the menu. Like, oh, sure. Yeah, I want a steak too while you're at it. Like, you know, <laughs> so it's the same thing as an owner in a brewery is you're inundated with feedback and you got to decide what you do and you got to communicate to employees. It's the same stuff. You were talking about something that triggered something I've been thinking about a lot. You said that you went to your friend who was an accountant and he introduced you to other breweries and they opened their books and shared a lot with you. And the thing I've been thinking about a lot is that when you own a geographical business, then you're not competing with that brewery two states over, right? So they're much more open to share with you. Whereas in on internet businesses, you're really competing with everyone because if you have a product that's feature for feature with another product, then you're competing with the whole world. Was that a big relief when you got more into brick and mortar businesses? Well, certainly because of like less money workshop, we technically in that group, we were all competitors. We're all built software, right? But we're not, you look at it like there's enough, all the rising tide floats all boats. If that's your mentality versus a scarcity mindset, you're a little bit more in favor of sharing. Also having an introduction from someone's accountant helps. It is a relief anytime you can take principles or a guiding star from something else you've done and apply it to a new industry where you're like, I think this is what these people want. It's what works somewhere else. Yeah, the brewing industry, every industry, the car wash industry is filled with really nice people and assholes. Software industry, it's the same way. Nice people and there's lots of assholes. Same thing with brewing. What you typically see around the few industries I've been involved in is especially when people start putting their egos in their business, that's when the sharing kind of stops or inflation of like the, we're growing 10X. But most people, if you really talk to someone who's, especially if you can put it in a way like, hey, I'm starting a business and breweries are known for tire kickers of like, oh, I'm going to do a brewery and get inundated by people who want to just talk to you, who have a beer recipe that they think is the world's best. And they're going to start, they're going to start a brewery. But if you my emails to a lot of people who were not clients of Chris Farman were, hey, already bought property and we are about to place an order for equipment. And I'm sure you were in the same spot at one point and you were dying for confirmation of an idea or someone to tell you you're doing something wrong. And I would just need 20 minutes of your time. I want to answer a couple of questions. I'll be super respectful. And that typically people want to help. I want to help people. You want to help people. That's why you have a podcast, right? So yeah, I think breweries are some, I don't think it's too much about proximity and location as much as finding people who are just nice and care. Actually, that's something that I had as a topic to talk about, Alan. It's something that's always stood out to me about you is that you've just been overwhelmingly open with wanting to help people. You had less conf party at your house. You had dinner parties at your house at less money. And I just remember you sending emails, like introducing people. I know that is just who you are, but like talk a little bit about that and how it's come back to enlighten you as well. Well, certainly other people have helped me. Any success I've had did not come from me descending from the heavens anointed with knowledge. And so other people have introduced me. Other people have offered feedback. And so it feels weird not to be that way. I'm also a person that likes to connect people. I love that. I would love to die one day really old and the people at my funeral are like, I'm not going to attribute all my success to Alan, but he was a part of a little snippet where I met someone that did a thing. That is all I want in life. 
I don't want statues of me and I don't really care about titles and lots of money. I just want to be like, oh yeah, that guy was good. Well, I grew up in a town where my grandparents and my parents and aunts and uncles were like business owners of businesses that are still around and iconic things in our little town. And so my whole life, I introduced myself. Hello, I'm Alan Branch going into school. Oh, I worked for your dad or my cousin worked at the car wash. Oh, we love the hamburgers at your grandparents' restaurants. And so my whole life, people filled me with snippets of how I was related to them in a way connected. And there were all these positive conversations and, or these like, oh, you're, my cousin used to work at the car wash and people were nicer to me. And so maybe there's something about that, that I want my children to have, or my grandchildren. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I love connecting people to see most problems or most hurdles can be overcome by just knowing someone else that's done something before you or conversation. So I don't know. Certainly isn't like, oh, uh, today I've got a goal of introducing five people. And some people are like that. Like they have this strategic way to become popular or something. I don't know. I also, so maybe you have this weird ability or knack where like the intercom guys that spoke with the first less comp, they were nobodies. They were just consultants. And I just would hear them speak and I would be like, there's something special about these guys. There's something special about that, their story or something they're saying. I don't know what that is. And so maybe I just see good in people and want to see like, I don't know, but it's not strategic. It's just something that's in me. I do plenty of things that are not nice and not kind to balance that out. And I say <laughs> plenty of things that are terrible that I regret later. So don't think I am a perfect person by any means. My wife would tell you the opposite. <laughs> I feel that. Don't let this podcast thing, thing make you think that I'm Mr. Nice Guy all the time. Well, Alan, man, it's been so cool to reconnect. I appreciate you doing this and it means a lot that you jumped on it so quickly and helped us out. We enjoy spending this time with you. I know others will enjoy it as well. Absolutely. I really appreciate that you share so much online. I aspire to share as much as you have, but the fact that you have has kind of given me, I was saying this before the show is like, there are people I've looked to, to show me other ways of doing life, other ways of doing business. And you've been a person that I've kind of looked up to and the way you've gone about really creative endeavors, the way you do your work, putting yourself into your work, whether it's just SaaS products or accounting software or whatever it is, being able to see that personality come through and the way you connect to others. So I really Thank appreciate that, that too. That means a lot. And that really does. It's actually have the one voicemail on my phone that I keep is from a friend who went out of town, the neighboring city and saw, he was wearing a history class shirt, which one of our breweries and someone said something nice to him. He was letting me know. And we don't take a lot of time as men to really do that for people. It sounds kind of like a, but it really does matter. I really appreciate those words. There's not a lot of celebratory moments. We're all just sitting in our spare rooms working. <laughs> yeah. And so hearing something nice like that really is cool. And I really appreciate that. Well, before we close out, Alan, is there anything you want to plug? You want to send people to website, something? If you're a Elixir dev, we I have some job openings for you or Rails developers too. So yeah, shoot me an email. I'll be, yeah. But I don't have anything to sell and there's no eBooks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> People can follow you on Twitter. You seem to still be active there, sharing bit, uh, yeah. sharing about bit. your life. I enjoy seeing your updates there, your tributes to Steve. And yeah, it's great. And we'll link all that up in the show notes. Awesome. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Alan. <laughs>